0: Let's stand together and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 15. We're going to jump out of our current series through the book of Acts and uh, jump into the Gospels uh, for uh, today and then, of course, for next Sunday. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and uh, wave, get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Mark chapter 15, verse 9. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him, that is, Jesus, over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, "'What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews?' And so they cried out again, "'Crucify him!' And then Pilate said to them, "'Why? What evil has he done?' But they cried out all the more, "'Crucify him!' And so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified." And then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and then, interestingly, to give you a sense for what was then meted out upon him, they called together the entire garrison, and they clothed them with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with murder drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this event called Love Modesto and what it has meant to our community in through the years, not only in the actual things that get done, but the whole spirit that it brings to our community that love isn't just a one-day event, and these things aren't necessarily have to be done in just one day, but, Lord, how it takes and puts within our hearts and our minds the idea that this can happen every day and the recognition of the love that our city needs and that the people of this city needs. And we ask that you would bless this event once again this year, Bless Jeff and his team as they lead and put these finishing touches on things and all that's involved behind the scenes to make something like this happen. And we pray that you would touch our individual hearts for where to be involved this year as well. We pray you continue to strengthen and bless Katie. We pray you touch her body and we pray also that you would minister your peace to her spirit and to her heart and to her mind. Thank you, Lord, for her, the vessel that she is, the instrument that you use her to lead us in worship, and now just bless her and her need now. And we do pray for the Women's Conference, and we ask that as this retreat is drawing to a close, that every single thing that you want to speak to each and every woman and all of the individualness and uniqueness of their need, that you would do exactly that, Put your finishing touches upon each one of their lives, we pray. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is both there and here and everywhere and greater than every need that we have, Lord. And we pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning and speak to us greatly concerning our Savior. You sent Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was sent in order that he might bear witness to Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that this morning... We would give you much to bear witness to, and that you would do that by your Spirit in each one of our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the coming week, on Good Friday and then on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, we will celebrate the three greatest events in human history And that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus who is the Christ. I think that very often because of the hecticness of life when we simply take the time to uh, consider his death, his burial, his resurrection on that short kind of span between Good Friday and Easter that... Uh, the way that life is and how it pushes us and it's always moving us on to the next thing that sometimes we can get to the end of de- the day on Resurrection Sunday and it's all like a blur. We hardly had any time to allow the great truths to kind of sink in and impact our lives. And so I want to get a bit of a head start on that this morning and to begin to turn our heart at the beginning of the week towards those great themes and those great realities that are bound up in those three great events. The famous Christian author and apologist, C.S. Lewis, he wrote in his book entitled The Problem of Pain, he said in what is one of my favorite quotes from Lewis, he said, You asked for a loving God. You have one. You asked for a loving God, he tells the world. You have one. He went on to say, The great spirit you so lightly invoked The Lord of terrible aspect is present, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work and his despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable. As a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. You ask for a loving God, you have one. And of course, everyone wants a God of love. It's our desire. It is our need. After all, what would be the alternative for us? And in this quote from Lewis, he is addressing the false concepts that we as individual human beings and our culture, our world as a whole, brings to the discussion concerning the subject of love. And he recognized that the sticking point is not the subject of love. It never is. Everyone can agree on its importance, but rather upon the definition of love, what it really looks like how it actually demonstrates itself. And for many people, and I think our culture aggressively advances this, love means never having to say you're sorry, or love is always expressed supremely in endorsing every thought or every idea that's voiced by others it always smiles approvingly, always affirming every action or decision that others make, no matter how wrong that decision or how destructive that decision or those actions might be. And love is the thing, is this thing that not only involves the heart, Lewis is saying. But And not only the emotions, but it also involves the mind. And in the culture that we live in, love is always, almost always spoken of strictly in terms of emotion, strictly in terms of the heart, but never the mind. And there is never anything intelligent about it, never anything rational about it, As so the conversation goes within the culture. It's never tested intellectually. It never does or says the hard thing. It always rolls over to accommodate everyone and anything and everything. And the point that C.S. Lewis is making is that love is not only expressed in affirmation. It is not only expressed in emotional warmth, but it's also expressed in doing what is right. Even when doing what is right is very, very hard to do. And I think that certainly every parent, every conscientious parent understands this. And the raising of our children to express Our love for them by taking them to Disneyland or bringing home a pizza for dinner is virtually effortless for us as an expression of love towards them. The far greater and the much more costly expression of love is found in all of the hours spent training them teaching them the difference between right and wrong, and and then training them to live such a life. It's found in all of the endless conversations, all of the getting after them to do their chores and to do their homework and to show respect toward others. And you think about as a parent how many words and how many hours are invested in a child between the moment of their birth and the reaching of 18 years of age, and all of it an expression of love. And you come home exhausted from work, and you plop down on the couch just to relax for a few minutes, and then in the other room one of the kids does something wrong. They punch one of their brothers and sisters, and you hear the scream of the victim and their cry for recompense, and here you are, you are now one with the couch. You have no interest in getting up from that couch at all. But what is it that gets you off of the couch to then address the sin and apply the necessary discipline and the necessary training? It is love. If we did not love them, we would simply leave them to themselves and ignore them and do what is easiest and best for us, we would remain seated upon the couch. And how do you explain to a child or an adolescent that all of these rules, all of the training, even the discipline and the punishment, all of the things that we tell them that they don't want to hear, all of the things that we make them do that they don't want to do, that all of it is an expression of love. To them, love is always yes and never no. Love is always easy and it's never hard. And it isn't until they grow older and become not an adult but they become a mature adult, that they come to realize how childish and how superficial their definition of love was. And we live in a very childish and adolescent culture with regards to love. It's viewed as always expressing itself in yes and never in no, This love has no backbone, no strength, no conviction, no rationale. It always does the easy thing and never the hard thing. It's never tough, but always soft, and it certainly never speaks of sin, much less confronts it or prohibits it or warns of its consequences. The love that is expressed in the culture around us simply rolls over for everything. And C.S. Lewis is pointing out the superficiality of such an understanding of love, and he is pushing back against this concept of love, whether it's found in the culture or within our own hearts, and reminding us that love is also strong, and it is holy, and it is jealous, and it is even demanding. And it is unbending, and it is all that the God of the Bible is, that He is the very definition of love, a love that is good and true. The rest of C.S. Lewis's quote in that particular chapter of his book uh, goes as follows. And I know to read something to an audience, I mean, it's hard enough for the reader to concentrate, to listen for any length, especially when you're reading something that is as dense in its content as what C.S. Lewis writes. But make an effort, and I think you'll find that it's worth the effort. He went on to say, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is not only insoluble, so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if men were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not even exist for his own sake. And he quotes from Revelation, that one of the praises that will be lifted up to the Lord in eternity. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. He goes on to say we were not made uh, we were not made primarily that we may love God though we were made for that too, but that God may love us and that we may become objects in su- in which the divine love may rest well pleased. To ask that God God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God would cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must in the nature of things be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. We cannot even wish in our better moments that he could reconcile himself to our present impurities no more than the beggar maid could wish that King Cophitus should be content with her rags in dirt, or a dog, having once learned to love man, should wish that man uh, could wish that man were such as to tolerate in his house the snapping, verminous, polluting creature of the wild pack. What, what we would here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as He can love without impediment, we shall, in fact, be happy. And I've entitled this morning's message, True Love. And I want to make three observations concerning true love and their relationship to God's love for us. First, that true love will always be honest with us. Especially, it will tell us the truth about ourselves and will also warn us concerning any life-threatening danger that we might find ourselves in. And then second, if it possesses the power to do so, true love will provide us a solution to our need, an answer to our need, a way out of our dilemma, a salvation. And then finally, third, But when it provides that way of salvation, true love will never do so in a way that is rooted in darkness or rooted in compromise or do so at the expense of goodness or rightness or holiness, but will always do so in a way that is right and holy. First, true love will always be honest with us, especially about any danger we might find ourselves in. The Bible teaches that the single greatest obstacle that stands between us and God is this thing called sin. And thankfully, God loves us enough to inform us of our sinful condition and then confront us on the issue. The Bible declares every single human being to be a sinner, both in nature and in practice. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Again from the book of Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. But the Bible goes on even further than declaring us to be sinners. It also declares to us the seriousness of sin. What would it matter if we were sinners, if there were no consequences to being sinners? But there are consequences to that. And God is faithful to point those out to us. Again, Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence of sin within our lives. Again, Romans chapter 3, we've already quoted it, for all have sinned, but Paul didn't stop there. He spoke of the consequence of it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of, our, of God. Our sin has separated us from a relationship with God the relationship with God that we have been created for. And it has consigned us to death, both a physical death in this lifetime and an eternal death in the life to come, an eternal separation from God. And it is in my mind the lack of consciousness concerning this that represents the single greatest obstacle to a person in our culture coming to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. It is the failure of our culture, and thus by and large the people within the culture, to take the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God seriously. The failure to do that. Because if I fail to recognize the seriousness of my sin, then I will never see my need for the forgiveness of my sins that God has also provided to mankind. Our culture does not take sin seriously. It blame shifts. It excuses it. It does everything that it can to keep a person from being confronted with not only sin, but the seriousness of sin. It's become a work of art It's become a craft of its own within the culture, how determined we are to not only ignore sin, but then when our face is put down right into it, to then even then fail to take it seriously. In the Old Testament, God had a powerful way of keeping the seriousness of sin ever before His people and the world as well. And it was through the sin offering, as is recorded in the book of Leviticus chapter 4. And the sin offering, the sacrifice of the sin offering, it was the offering that had to be made not to provide mankind under the Old Covenant with the forgiveness of sin. It never even approached that. It was the offering that was made merely to cover sin. And the individual guilty of sin would bring a lamb without spot and blemish to the priest at the tabernacle. The priest would then instruct the sinner to lay his hands on the head of the innocent lamb. And this was a public acknowledgement of their sinfulness, of their own need of forgiveness. In this laying of their hands upon the head of the Lamb, it symbolized the transfer of their sin upon the innocent animal. And it is a picture of substitution, the transference of the sin of the guilty to the innocent sacrifice. And then as their hands were upon the head of that animal, as they looked at that animal, they knew that it was going to die in their place. And it was going to die for their sin. And then the lamb was slain before the Lord. The priest would cut the artery in the sheep's neck in order to produce a quick death. And as a result, this stream of warm bud- blood would begin to flow out of the lamb. The lamb would begin to weaken. Its legs would begin to buckle. And then it would collapse in death. In the entire ceremony would produce this profound sense of horror. A stunned sense of something seems to have gone terribly wrong here. Something seems terribly backwards here. And it was intended to do so. And as they stood before the tabernacle, there with this sacrifice in just a matter of minutes... The sacrifice was slain and bled and gutted and cut in pieces until it no longer resembled a lamb anymore and all because of their sin. And yet they got to continue to live. And it raised the question in the mind of the sinner, how is it that it dies and I live? And it is interesting To realize, I think, that from the time of the giving of this law concerning the sin offering at the time of Moses until the coming of Jesus as the Messiah to the nation of Israel, it was a period of about 1,500 years and so for 1,500 years, God used this sin offering in order to drive home the, conce- the concepts of transference and substitution associated with the cleansing of sin. And every time the sin offering was offered, there was the recognition that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of an innocent. Substitution. And that the f- My forgiveness and salvation has occurred because the Lord has made a way for my sin to be transferred to another transference. And so for 1,500 years in human history, the Lord had driven home the point to sinners. I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. So that, When Jesus came on the scene as their Messiah, declaring that the cleansing of their sins would occur on the basis of substitution, Him dying in our place, and the transference of my sin to be placed upon Him through faith, that the nation of Israel... And the world itself should not have acted as if this were some foreign concept. They had been acting it out for 1,500 years. God had been preparing them for 1,500 years. Isaiah, the prophet prophesied of it in Isaiah chapter 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is, Jesus. He has put him, that is, Jesus, to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he that is the Father shall see his that is Jesus' seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by the knowledge of my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. John the Baptist spoke of Jesus, and he understood it completely when he told his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was John the Baptist speaking concerning Jesus and all of this? That Jesus is the one who is going to die for our sins in our place. The sin of the whole world. Imagine being transferred to him. You think about the typology of the Old Testament. A single lamb, a single sinner, a single set of hands being placed upon that lamb. The transference of just one person's sin. You see Jesus upon the cross and you see him there. And when you see him there, see the hands of every single person in human history, their hands upon him, and the transference of all of that sin upon perfect innocence as he hung upon that cross. And all of that sin offering of the Old Testament was a faint shadow of Calvary, a preparation for Calvary. And we sing, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Well then, let's behold him. And let's set our eyes fully and unflinchingly upon Jesus hanging on the cross. Let's scan the entire scene with our mind's eye and see the crown of thorns on his head. And we see the wounds of the scourging We see the nails driven through the flesh and through the blood. We see the face beaten, unrecognizable for who he is, covered with the spit of man. We see him and watch him struggle for every breath upon the cross. We feel his thirst. We hear the blasphemies being directed to him. We feel the shame, or we try to. We try to feel the shame, the shame of the Son of God being so shamefully treated. And we see him alone, so alone, much more alone than we could ever know. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then see his blood everywhere. And his body so brutalized that there is, he is nothing but one great, open, bleeding wound from head to toe on the cross. But don't stop there. Don't look away at that point until you behold one of the most awesome pictures in all of the Bible. Behold him dead on that cross. See him ceased from breathing his voice silenced, his head bowed, his body slumped, those healing hands still and lifeless. And Jesus' death upon the cross is the strongest declaration of the seriousness of sin in human history, where the death of the very Son of God was required in in order to provide us with the forgiveness of our sin. Paul wrote of it to the church at Corinth, and he said, For he, he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And just as the sacrifice of the sin offering in the Old Testament was intended to produce this profound sense of horror, this stunned sense of something seems to have gone terribly wrong on this scene, something seems terribly backwards, as we look at Jesus in human history and we ask ourselves, how is it that he dies and I get to live? And so, too, the cross of Calvary is intended to have that similar impact upon us, to produce the same whore and to produce the same question. Now, second, if it possesses the power to do so, true love will provide a solution to our need, an answer, a salvation, a way out of our dilemma as sinners. It would be a cruel thing If for God to make us aware of the enormity of our guilt and then to leave us hopeless under the weight of it. Imagine that. Being made known of the enormity. One day here I am engaged in sin day after day after day after day and it means nothing to me. I don't think twice about it. And then one day the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin. And I realize what I've done, and not only what I've done, but who I am to be capable of doing what I've done. And the enormity of the guilt that lies upon us on that morning or that noon or that night when suddenly it hits us that we are a sinner. And what if there was no place to run with our sin, no place to run with our guilt, it would be a cruel thing for God to make us aware of our guilt and then to leave us hopeless under the weight of, us, of it to fail to provide a way of escape, a way of forgiveness. But the God of the Bible doesn't merely inform us of our guilt before Him, but He then tells us of the gospel, the good news in the light of our guilt, that He has provided us with forgiveness and salvation, and it's found through faith in his Son. And Jesus put it perfectly, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To a person who understands even remotely the greatness of our sin, that is wonderful news. It is great news. And why has God done this? Why has he provided this salvation and this forgiveness, love? His love for us. His love for you, personally. His love for me personally. and you take all of the physical pain that Jesus experienced prior to the cross and the horror of that morning, and then all that he experienced while on that cross. All of the physical abuse, all of the mental abuse, all of the insults and the blasphemies, all of the shame and the humiliation, you have the concentration, the full concentration of all of Satan's resources directed toward him, all of the absolute ugliness of Satan and all of its greatness there brought against Jesus in order to try and break him. He's on the cross bearing the weight of all of the sin of human history. And again, that aloneness behind this cry to the Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you put all of it together in one great heap and then realize that his love for each of us is greater still. We sing in celebration of this truth. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you, and all I do, I honor you. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. I remember seeing a poster many years ago As a new Christian. The poster declared it was hanging in a church. And it said, It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross, but his love for you and me. And it's true. Twelve legions of angels stood on tiptoes for one word from either father or son to bring an end to that scene and the word never came and why did it never come God's love for you and God's love for me and finally third but in providing the way of salvation true love will never do so in a way that's rooted in darkness or compromise it will never ever come at the expense of goodness and rightness and holiness. Someone might ask this morning, why is it necessary for Jesus to die for our sins? Why was that necessary? And the reason is is that only He could. Only He was uniquely qualified to do so. You see, God faced a tremendous dilemma in His desire to save us first of all, is a loving Heavenly Father. He desired to save us and to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins, but a loving Heavenly Father is only one of the hats that God wears. He's also a righteous judge. He is the moral ruler Of the universe, and we never want him to take that hat off. And in order for him to be a righteous judge, a judge who is unwavering in his commitment to justice and rightness and holiness and to his law, every sin must be paid for. It must be paid for. Either men will pay eternally for their own sins in judgment, or a qualified substitute must pay for it. But somebody must pay for it. And the dilemma that he faced was this. How to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins without violating his laws? How can he make a way for an unrighteous man to enter into a relationship with him and then to one day enter into heaven? When the righteousness, the rightness, the right onness that is required for heaven is perfection. And this brings us back to C.S. Lewis's observation when he said, To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God would cease to be God. And the Apostle Paul framed the dilemma in much the same way when he in Romans chapter 3 raised the question of how in the world can God justify sinful man and remain just in doing so. And the only solution to that dilemma was the cross of Calvary. And it was only the death of Jesus on the cross that allowed God to express both his love and his justice at the same time, to remain just and holy and yet still be the justifier of sinful man. Because of our sin, every human being sits on a spiritual death row where apart from some kind of intervention, we awaited or we await the eternal judgment that our sin deserves. He cannot save himself from death row. He is already on death row. And no mere human being can save him or die for him because we are all on death row. We have no life to give. The only person who could step in and take our place is someone who is not on spiritual death row himself, someone who is sinless. And only that one can come and take our place in order to bear our judgment and thus meet the righteous standard of the law. Only that one could allow God the Father to express His love for sinful man in forgiving Him, but also allow the Father to remain just and righteous in doing so. And that is what Jesus has done for us in the words of the psalmist and the volume of the book testifies to Jesus. It is only at the cross of Calvary that justice and mercy can kiss. The psalmist wrote in Psalm eighty-five, ten: mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And no greater fulfillment of that passage in Scripture than the cross of Calvary. It is only in the death of Jesus upon the cross for our sins that the fullness of the love of God for man is expressed but also that the wrath and justice of God is satisfied. It is only that that allows God to justify man and still remain just It is only the death of Jesus on that cross that allows sinners to be viewed as righteous in the eyes of God. And how does that happen in a person's life? How does that happen in your life practically? By putting your trust and your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You say, is it that easy? Don't I have to climb the Himalayas? Don't I have to run a hundred miles? Don't I have to crawl a hundred miles over gravel someplace in the world? No. The single greatest thing that any human being can ever do to bless and honor the heart of God is to accept his son there is nothing greater than that there's nothing greater that you can do than to put your faith in him and say father I believe that he is who he said he was and I believe that my salvation is found as you have said in putting my trust in Him for my sins not to be covered, but to be completely washed away, and then to do it. And when a person does that, they will then receive this forgiveness of sins. And when you do so, a tremendous miracle occurs surrounding you life, your life. Not only are you your sins forgiven by God, but God then imputes the perfect righteousness, the perfect rightness, the perfect right onness of Jesus to your account, as Paul writes about in Romans chapter 4. So that for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, imputing means it's an accounting firm where something is put into the asset column of our life, the ledger of our life. And Jesus' righteousness is put into that ledger when we put our faith in him. So that for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, when God looks at you, he will never again see your sin, He will never again see your unrighteousness. He will only see the perfect righteousness of Jesus. He will see you justified. That's the theological term. And the word justified means just as if I had never sinned. Wow. When I became a Christian, God called in that heavenly accounting firm called for the Damien Kyle file they had to truck it in all of the sins recorded whether by hand or video I don't know but all of it there and then they destroyed every record of my sin every record of all of my liabilities And then imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to my account. And my file in heaven, so to speak, is not some big, thick one. You pull the little file folder out, and there's a single sheet inside. And on that single sheet is a single word. And it is the word righteous. And what is true of me as a Christian is true of you as a Christian and every Christian in this world. And if you are not yet a Christian this morning, the same thing can be true of you today if you've never put your trust in Him. Think about it. Where do we take our guilt in life when we become conscious of our guilt? Wouldn't it drive you mad? Wouldn't it drive you crazy? Wouldn't it drive us as it does in the culture and the cultures of the world to drugs and to drink and to something that would numb its voice within our life? But it will never take away our guilt, not even the consciousness of guilt, but a faith in Christ will. And then that righteousness being imputed to our account, being put to our account, There are going to be men and women, and some pastors as well, up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to answer your questions and pray with you, if you are not yet a Christian, to put your faith in Jesus Christ today and to receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ put to your account. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving. People say, well, that's cheap. It's too easy. No, no, no. Salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Just because we didn't have to pay the price for it doesn't mean that somebody didn't pay the price for it. All forgiveness in life comes at somebody's expense. Our forgiveness comes at tremendous expense. But Jesus is the one that paid that expense so that you might receive the forgiveness of sins today and enter into a personal relationship with him and have the confidence of heaven after this life and to be freed from your guilt. And it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. For those of us this morning who are saved, I hope that this morning will be just a time of priming the pump for the coming week for a deep and thankful and worshipful consideration of Jesus this week. I think that once we become Christians, we tend to cease to think about the wrath of God that once hung over our lives. We tend to cease to think about an eternal lake of fire and eternal judgment. And it's only right and natural that we would cease to think about those things. But I think it's good sometimes to be reminded of where we were once headed and all of its horrible reality and then the price that was paid to deliver us from every bit of it and then the love of God that is behind all of it, not only in providing us with this salvation, but then a willingness to tell us the truth about ourselves so that we would recognize our need and then receive the gift that he longs for each one of us to receive. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we think about all of the songs and all of the books and all of the poems and all of the conversations surrounding the subject of love in our world and in our culture and how especially within our culture it has been allowed to be defined into something that is weak and feeble and will fail every single one of us as well as this culture and as well as the world. Thank you, Lord, that in the face of all of these new definitions and redefinitions, that we are able to turn to your word and to see you and to study you and to come to know you in a greater measure and to know that in doing so, We are coming into contact with real love and true love. Thank you, Lord, for every expression of your love in our life. When it feels good and when it affirms and when it feels warm emotionally, and then, Lord, when it smites us, when it gets our attention, when it disciplines us, and re-puts us on the right path. Thank you, Lord, that this wonderful, priceless, not only subject, but reality called love will never be lost in human history, not because of men and women, but because of you. Thank you for being a God of love. Thank you for being our God. We bless you, and we praise you.